0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Rich, and I am an alcoholic, and thank you for that introduction, Jim. I, was, I had a 24-hour stomach virus, apparently, last week, and after about 20 hours of writhing in my deathbed and taking trips to the Toilet of Doom, I finally decided I think I need to go to the hospital, and it was a good decision that I made, and I was home that afternoon, so, so close call. <laughs> <laughs> And trust me, the first, because I am a selfless alcoholic, the first thought in my head was, I cannot die on gym. I just can't. <laughs> hey, and thank you for the Illinois State Alumni Convention Committee for all the work that you do in putting this together. As I said last night, this stuff doesn't just happen. <laughs> and I am um, delighted to participate in the Illinois State Al-Anon Convention. I have never spoken as an AA speaker at an Al-Anon convention. I am very honored and privileged. and I, I can't help but think of, I'm sure you all have either heard or heard of, Larsine, who is the Al-Anon speaker. I um, spoke at a conference, like, she should. Um, I spoke at a conference with her in Austin, Texas, a number of years ago. She was the featured Al-Anon speaker, and she said she always laughs when she sees the flyer that says, AA convention! With Alan on participation at the bottom, <laughs> and then she says, "Y'all certainly welcomed our participation when you were in jail." <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> um, I, I am. I have huge respect for this. Perp- Aren't they cute? Hi, Lois. Hi, Anne. I have huge respect for this program for these women that started this program for these women that realized that not just their husbands who were alcoholics had a problem, they had a problem too. How many people here have read the book Lois Remembers? Good. It's a terrific book. I've actually read it twice, and I think I'm about ready to take it down off the shelf at some point and read it again. And the reason I like it is because... um, I am a big nerd about early AA history and how it all came together and how it could have fallen apart at any moment. And the fact that we are here today, you as Al-Anon and some of us as AA, that to me is proof of a higher power because it should have fallen apart. Because, I mean, look at us. (laughs) And you know, like any good Al-Anon, she spends half her book on AA. And she talks a lot about the history of AA that I had not learned until I read her book. And so I loved her book. And I have a friend, Robin, she's a black belt Al-Anon, and her husband, who's in AA, calls that book, Lois Remembers Everything. (laughs) 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 So I'm very happy to be here. And I'll just tell you a little bit about myself as an alcoholic, and then I'm gonna really try to carry the message of the 12 steps of recovery. Um, I am from West Virginia. You can. Hello, I went away. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> I'll get a battery. Right. Yeah. yeah. I said it just pops. Perfect. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Are we there? Yes. yes. Perfect. <laughs> See, what would we do without our alarms? The battery was sitting right here. I didn't. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Um, so, I'm from West Virginia, so you could probably hear a bit of a twang in my voice. It gets worse when I go home to visit my mother. Um, my God, some of the women there, it's like they're from Georgia. Well, how are you? Oh, have you lost weight? <laughs> I mean, it's just, they just really stretch those syllables out. And uh, I, I used to hate being from West Virginia. I went to escape it. Now I am so glad that that was my upbringing. I just have a lot of, of, of feeling in my heart for West Virginia. I always say, so there's like, I live in St. Louis now. There's less people in the state of West Virginia than there is in the metropolitan St. Louis area. So there's not that many of us. And when we're out around the country and I see a w, WV symbol, I go running up and it's like we've lost, we've found long lost relatives, which, you know, in West Virginia's case, it may be. Um, I get to make those jokes, you know. Um, And, you know, we're just so glad to see each other. And I always say, like, if I'm in a room full of people and I want to know who's from West Virginia, I just put the song Country Roads on. And anybody who's from West Virginia is going to start crying and singing along. (laughs) Country roads, take me home. (laughs) I mean, we just love that song. I was raised by a single parent, my mother. Um, I'm an only child. She got pregnant with me in the small town of Richwood, West Virginia, population 4,000, salute, and nestled in the mountains of Appalachia. She got pregnant when she was 17 in 1957. Can you imagine? And she, she is a woman of steel. She moved to the big city of Charleston, West Virginia, population 50,000, salute, and she got a job two months after I was born, work, born working for um, a lawyer as a legal secretary. That was in September of 1958, and in January of 2009, she retired from that job. That doesn't happen anymore. And she still went in and worked for him. You know, she couldn't. She didn't take the retirement very well. <laughs> and my mother um, grew up in a chaotic home. That was affected by alcoholism. She's not an alcoholic, but she was affected by the disease, just as you all were. You know how that is. And she, like Scarlett O'Hara grabbing that dirt, as God is my witness, she was not going to raise me in the way that she was raised. And so we moved only once that I remember, where she moved dozens of times. She was shuffled from family member to family member. My mother was the only one who raised me. I mean, you know, I spent time with my grandmother, my aunt and uncle, but she was the primary caregiver, and I never doubted that she loved me. And that is just such an amazing thing to be able to say because I know some people in this program don't have that certainty that their parents, or they didn't see it in a way that that worked for them. And I did. But I come from a disease of alcohol, or a family of alcoholics, and when I was 17, I got drunk for the first time. And alcohol did for me what I could not do for myself. I hated myself, although I don't know if I could have told you that at the time, but it's how I felt. I was so uncomfortable in my skin, I wanted to be anybody else but me. I used to make up huge fantasies in my head about how I'd be a different person or I'd be in a different family or, or I'd have more money or this, that, and the other. I, just, I mean, these fantasies went on for a good many years. Because I couldn't stand who I was, and when I got drunk, that seemed to lift. And I got drunk, insanely drunk, the first time. And I, so you guys could probably answer this question for me. I'm not a non-alcoholic. When a non-alcoholic gets real drunk, I imagine the next morning. I have no idea. So I'm, This is all guess- guesses. I imagine they go, Oh, wow, that was that was really silly, and I threw up, and I don't think I need to do that again. I couldn't wait to do it again, <laughs> because it was the only thing that worked for me when nothing else did, and it worked for me for a number of years. I told uh, our speaker, Kathy, last night, I had to tell her, because I'm not going to get a chance to talk to her after the meeting, that I am also a dentist, like her husband was, <laughs> and I don't think there's any two scarier words in the English language you can put together than an alcoholic dentist. <laughs> Not necessarily good PR, um, and I don't, know what, I don't know what school her husband went to, but I drank all the way through dental school. <laughs> that's why college was the best 10 years of my life. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> well, I'm joking about the best 10 years of my life, the best years of my life. I'm not joking about the 10 years of my life, unfortunately, and that's a direct result of my drinking. I somehow managed to get a degree from dental school, but it took me way longer than it should have, and that is because I drank like an alcoholic. Because it was only my only tool to deal with the insane fear that I felt. Not only just with dental school, but just with life. I remember in college I lived in a freshman dorm, and in my sophomore year, you know they didn't let you live in the freshman dorms anymore, and I had to call a landlord. To ask about an apartment. And I was so scared to call a landlord to ask about an apartment that I couldn't do it for three days. I normal people don't act like that. And that's how scared I was. And alcohol was my only tool. Unfortunately, it did damage as well. And, um, you know, I'm not going to tell you much about my drinking. I, well, I will tell one rip roaring story. But I. I <laughs> I basically drank nine times out of ten until I either threw up or I blacked out or I passed out or I woke up in a sordid situation. That's pretty much my drinking career. I'll tell you one quick story. Um, When I was in college, it was common at uh, our college, there was two campuses a couple of miles apart, and it was common to hitchhike between them. I mean, everybody did it. Before a class changed during the daytime, you'd see a row of a dozen students standing out at the one corner where everybody hitchhikes at the one campus with their thumbs out, and cars would just come and pick them up and take them downtown. One night at 3 in the morning, I'm really drunk, and I am hitchhiking, and it just takes, I mean, at 3 o'clock in the morning, maybe once every 10 minutes, a car goes by. And they would pass me by, and they would pass me by, and they would pass me by. And finally, this little Toyota pickup truck... Pulled up, and uh, I just got right in. I mean, that's what you did. You just got right in. And the driver was, I swear to God, I'm not making this up, and I hate to tell this story about West Virginia, but anyway, the driver was like this real thin guy. He looked like, you know, like a hillbilly. That's what we are. And uh, he, I think, I don't know, there's something wrong with his eyes. Like they were kind of milky, cloudy, and he was driving, and then sitting beside him was a very, very obese woman in an orange polyester dress, and that orange polyester dress stands out in my memory like neon. And I got into the car, and I didn't even have to tell them where I was going because everybody knew you got dropped off at the other campus in front of the student union. And I just sat in the car, and I looked at that woman's—I could see her orange—the weave of the orange polyester on her sleeve—and I did one of those four things that I just told you about. I passed out. Yeah, you should be scared. <laughs> the motion of the truck coming to a stop woke me up, and I kind of came out of my stupor. And I looked around, and we're out some gravel road somewhere next to a field with a wooden fence, the trees. It was really like beautiful and serene. This fog was halfway down the tree. This was in summer, and it was just gorgeous. And I'm like looking around. And I looked back at them, and I said, where am I? And the woman was looking at me like this after Imitator. <laughs> and, and the man leaned over her, and he said a word I don't want to say from the podium, so I'm going to say the word blank instead. He said, you can blank her if you want. <laughs> yeah, ew, that's a correct response. No offense, <laughs> but I got out of that truck and I started walking, and I'm—I I'm mean, I could have been in, you know, Peoria, Illinois. I didn't know where I was, and alcohol gave me the courage to go back and say, "Please take me home." And That old man said, "Get in," and I got back in with him. Well, we were only a couple of miles outside of town, and as soon as I saw Familiar Landmark, they were actually coming to a stop, but I didn't even let them come to a complete stop. I opened the door and I jumped. And I was so embarrassed of that story. I was so ashamed. And we can laugh about it today, but in a parallel universe, my body was found lying along that gravel road, for all we know. That's where alcohol took me. Finally, a few years later, and I'll tell this and I'll get on to recovery. I, uh, my friend and I were driving to dental school, and there was a row of students hitchhiking. He goes, Rich, did you ever hitchhike? <laughs> well, let me tell you. <laughs> and the <his> story just <laughs> came pouring out. And he threw his head back and laughed so hard. And that was so healing for me because I carried such shame about it. And he thought it was funny. He, he hasn't done this in a long time, but he used it for years. I would come home, and there would be a voicemail on my answering machine, and i go, beep. You can blank her if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'd call him back, hi, Tim, how you doing? <laughs> So on September the 1st, 1991, which is my sobriety date, I forgot to mention that. Um, Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, my sobriety date is September the 1st, 1991. I just celebrated 25 years, and I'm really not sure when that happened. I mean, I remember the first big AA conference I spoke at, I was nine years sober, and I thought I was an old-timer then. (laughs) So it's just hard to imagine all these years have gone by. And I think, I hope... It's because I'm doing the best I can to live one day at a time. And when you do that, they add up pretty well. I have a sponsor. I sponsor men in this program. I have a home group. Um, I am in the middle of the AA boat, as they say. At least, you know, most days I am. And uh, I had the spiritual experience that helped me to put down my last drink. I I know a lot of people in AA don't have that. Some people struggle in AA to stay sober. The compulsion to drink was lifted. It was truly, and I had no trouble believing in a higher power because I knew I could not do that. I could not go a weekend without throwing up, passing out, blacking out, waking up in a sort of situation. And now I no longer had a compulsion to drink. And I started going to AA right away because one of my best drinking buddies from dental school got sober 10 months before I did. And so I had him as a resource. And I think because my compulsion to drink had been lifted so easily, I really didn't work the program very well. Because I'm here to tell you, and it's time to bring out my big book, The Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, This book has saved my life. And it starts out after a few um, forwards to the editions with the doctor's opinion. And what this doctor says is Dr. Silkworth, who first treated Bill Wilson back in the 30s. He says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. My partner today, he, he runs triathlons and marathons and races and bike races, and they're always so early in the morning, and I'll go with him to support him. And here's all these hundreds of people up at 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> that, was not, um, that was not my normal life when I drank. <laughs> and I always think, wow, while all these people are up and getting ready to work their bodies and be healthy, there's way more of them laying in bed hungover. Or laying in bed worried sick. Or laying in bed in fear. So, but that was my only normal life. And here's a really key thing. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Now I know those of you who are not alcoholics don't get this. But the people that are alcoholics, I get it. I get it. You know, it also says, you know, if, if you think your alcoholic is drinking to escape, the doctor tells me differently. These alcoholics were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. Now, the doctor talks about the physical part. He's talking about the physical part, that physical craving that starts when I take a drink that a non-alcoholic does not have. When I take a drink, I want to finish it and I keep going. My partner who is not an alcoholic drinks half a drink and puts puts it down and I look at him like he's from Mars. And I say, you finished that drink. There's sober people in Europe. (laughs) But there's also a mental component. He calls it the physical allergy and the mental obsession. And so, because I had had that compulsion to drink lifted, but I did not really work the program for a long time. I mean, I did—I mean, I did some really good, deep therapy, uncovering some secrets. I, I worked occasionally with a sponsor. Sometimes I worked a step with a sponsor. Sometimes I worked a step without a sponsor. Kids, don't try that at home. <laughs> but I really wasn't recovered from the disease of alcoholism. I thought all I had to do was not drink and go to meetings. And then at 12 and a half years of doing that, not wanting to drink, I was in this paragraph on page 52 of the big book called The Bedevilments. I call them the anti promises. I call them the promises I get when I don't work this program. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. And I tell you, I probably would have not admitted that at 12 and a half years sober, but in retrospect, that's exactly where I was at. And I don't know what happened, but something God, if I don't know what happened, it's God, pushed me to this Straight nailed, big book thumping, testosterone hosing guy. <laughs> and I asked him to sponsor me. And he kind of handled me with kid gloves at first because he knew I was sensitive. But um, after a while, he realized he really wasn't helping me to recover. So he started sponsoring me like he does his other men. And he was, let me put it this way he cared more about my recovery than he cared about my feelings. And that's what I needed, as much as I didn't think so at the time. Why is he so mean to me? Um, He was mean to me because he wanted me to have the gift that he has, the gift of happiness, joy, and freedom. To not only just not drink, but to be recovered from the thinking disease, the mental obsession. And here's what I found out, knowing a lot of you all in Alamon. You and I share the same thinking disease you just don't have the craving you just don't have the physical allergy but you have the thinking disease and i after i realized that i realized you know what you could hang on you could take the questionnaire for are you an alcoholic and just adapt it easily to do you qualify for al anon by changing one word drink for think do you think alone Do you have more than two thoughts a day? Do you think and drive? You better believe it. Do you plan your day around thinking? I mean, I could go on and on and on. We share the same thinking disease. And the solution is the same. It's the 12 steps. That was a great humility to realize that Because I thought y'all were crazy And then I found out, oh God, no, I'm crazy too (laughs) And the funny thing is And you guys probably know this The 12 steps of AA and the 12 steps of Al-Anon Are exactly alike Except for one word You carry this message to others We carry it to alcoholics It's not your job to carry it to the alcoholics I know you want to (laughs) But it's not your job, it's our job And so my sponsor told me about all that, and we read the big book together, and I started going to big book meetings, and he told me about the first step of powerlessness. I tell you what, my journey was the first step. First of all, I didn't think I was powerless over alcohol. I just thought I liked to party. My God, I was a sophomore in college when the movie Animal House came out. To me, that was validation of my behavior on the big screen. (laughs) It's not a pretty picture. Um... And so I just thought, oh, no, i just like to party. And then after a number of years, I sort of couldn't delude myself anymore into thinking that I could stop drinking once I started. And so I, I suspected that I was powerless over alcohol. But I thought I could still manage my life. And then after a number of years again, for the past probably last two years that I drank, I knew that my life was unmanageable. And I did not care as long as I could get drunk again. And that was a horrible hell. Once I started working with his sponsor, I had to realize I'm not just powerless over alcohol. I'm powerless over everything. But, and so step one, this is a crappy step, right? I'm powerless. I'm unmanageable. Oh, why are you being so mean to me? When the second step is the, the solution. Came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Sanity, I'm not insane. Oh, yes, you are. Shut up. Uh, (laughs) But here's the deal about that. I don't think they, I think they chose every word they wrote in the big book carefully. It does not say that a higher power will bring us to sanity. It says it will restore. That means to bring back to sanity. I believe that I was born a perfect spiritual sane being. And then from the moment I popped my head out of the womb, it was downhill. (laughs) So I had to be restored to that as an adult. Well, then I move on to the third step. Um, oh, my God. Oh, good. It's right here. Made a decision. <laughs> I really do work this program. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Well, and it's funny because in the book it's actually says Because I'm thinking, what in the world does that mean? Well, you know, in the book it says... Just what do we mean by that? (laughs) And just what do we do? And it goes on for a number of pages, and it starts, the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. The more I try to get things my way, the more life gets bad. Or maybe it gets good for a little bit because I got my way, but then by then I've stepped on the toes of my fellows and they're retaliating. I had to let go of doing things my way. And I understand, I understand, especially from an Al-Anon perspective, when you didn't drink and you didn't cause all that crazy mayhem from the actual drinking, to realize that you can't run things either. That's a very spiritual, humbling awareness. And I had to face it too. I had to face the fact that just because I had put down my last drink 12 and a half years before, my life was still powerless and I was still unmanageable. And so I had to stop doing it my way. And I went up to my sponsor because I wanted what he had. I liked what he shared in meetings. He was very honest and direct. And so he started telling me what he did to get what he has. I'm like, well, I don't want to do that. (laughs) Do you want what I have? I guess. Well, this is what I did. And so it's absurd for me to resist a sponsor's direction if I want what that sponsor has. Of course I'm going to do it. You know, it's two steps forward and one step back. But I will say that I ultimately did everything he directed me to. Um, And so I had to stop doing it my way. And this decision, well, how do I know I've made the decision? Well, I know I've made my decision when I take pen to paper and start writing my fourth step. And there's a specific way that the fourth step is directed to be done in the big book. And I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with that. And they are very, very, very smart. First of all, I'll say that they, they tell me that my problem, well, I, I, I'm an alcoholic, that's a problem, but the real problem is selfishness and self-centeredness. That we think is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-pity, self-seeking, delusion, We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes we're not even aware that we stepped on the toes of our fellows. And we're so righteously indignant when they retaliate against us. But we can usually look back and see, Oh, well, the reason you're acting like this is because I acted like this. You know, for a number of years. And so selfishness manifests itself in different ways. And one of the biggest ways it manifests itself is resentment. And I'm telling you, I came into this program full of fear and secrets and self-loathing and resentments and shame. And that's what the 12 steps are designed to get rid of, get all that garbage out so that I can have as open a channel as possible to this God of my understanding I've decided to turn my will and my life over to. And so we're going to start tackling that right in the fourth step. And they're smart. They're really smart. They start with resentments. They don't start with fear. They don't start with sex because, you know, oh, my God, I don't want to talk about that. They start with resentments. I'd love to talk about my resentments. (laughs) I don't know why anybody resists the fourth step at the beginning. And my sponsor told me to get a sheet of paper, tri-fold it so that I have three columns, and then start the first column with who I'm resentful against. The second column, what they did to me, oh, even better. And in the third column, what it affected, whether it was our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal or sex relations, which had been interfered with. In other words, I wasn't getting my way. That's how a child reacts. And so I started out, and I'll just give you a couple examples. Well, I am resentful against my mother because she... By the way, if anybody doesn't put their mother on their resentment list, or are leaving something out. You know that, right? <laughs> if it's not one thing, it's your mother. I'm resentful of her because she, she overprotected me and smothered me and I didn't get to grow up and be emotionally mature because of her. And, then, uh, and that affects my self-esteem and my security and my personal relations. And then... Um, then I, Oh, and then I'm resentful against the Internal Revenue Service <laughs> because they keep sending me these certified letters I have to go all the way to the post office to pick up, and then I don't open them, and I just throw them in a drawer, and they stay there for years at a time, and every time I walk by that drawer, my stomach gets sick, the nerve of the IRS. That affects my economic security and my self-esteem. And then this is where (laughs) a lot of resistance comes in. The fourth column is what was my part? And that's why I need the help of a sponsor, because I will rationalize myself out of my part like nobody's business. And my sponsor had to tell me. First of all, he explained that as a child, I had no part with my mother. It was her job to raise me. As a child, I had no part. But as an adult, once I turned age 18, all of my behavior toward her, I had a part in that. And I I judged her. I condescended toward her. I I thought she was stupid and provincial. And I snapped at her. And I nickel and dimed her to death for years. I would always, oh my God, I would call from college. Mother, if you don't put $100 in my account right now, I'm going to bounce five checks. And she'd go. (sighs) That Allen on side. Okay. And she walked across the street and put money in my account, which she never had much money. She's a legal secretary, remember? And then the Internal Revenue Service, can you guess what my part was with that? <laughs> I didn't pay him. <laughs> so that was my part. And then I write about my fears, because we are driven by a hundred forms of fear. And I had to write about all of them. Fear of abandonment. That's always a big one. Fear of growing old alone and dying alone. At the time that I was sponsored by this gentleman from 2004 to 2009, I was not in a relationship. And I just thought, no, I'm never going to be in a relationship, and I'm just going to die alone. So here's what happened with that. Being sponsored by this gentleman, I started going to more AA meetings. And he said, your problem is selfishness, so you're going to think of others. And when you hear somebody struggling in a meeting, you're going to call them and ask them later, how are you doing, or take them out for coffee afterwards. And you're going to do things for people, and you're not going to tell them that you're doing it for them. And so I started doing this. And six months later, I was sitting in a meeting, and I thought, oh, my God. I'm in the middle of the AA boat, And I am not scared anymore that I'm going to grow old, alone, and die alone. If I stay in the middle of this AA boat. And that means not just going to meetings, not just talk you know, seeing how other people are, but also working these steps, and especially steps ten to twelve on a daily basis. I'm never gonna grow old alone and die alone. Maybe I won't have that one special someone. <laughs> I think I'm gonna have a whole lot of special someones. Because we don't do this alone. And that's really hard for some of us, it's hard to ask for help, I get that.
1: And then, it's so
0: funny, because they, um, they're they very eloquent, and Bill Wilson, I know some people make fun of his writing, but I think it's just fantastic, and it's just very, sometimes flowery, and um, over the top, but he's writing this paragraph about God. We never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality is the way of weakness. Paradoxal, paradoxically, is the way of strength, and he goes on and on, and talks about the fear prayer. We ask him to remove our fear, direct our attention to what he would have us be. At once, we commence to outgrow fear. And then it's as if all those old white men from the 30s took a deep collective breath and said, now about sex. (laughs) And they were smart for writing about it because they knew this would trip people up and it would get them to drink again. And here's what they say many of us needed an overhauling there but above all we tried to be sensible on this question and they treat the matter of sex just like they do every other problem that we have we ask ourselves questions first of all we reviewed our own conduct over the years past where have we been selfish dishonest or inconsiderate whom had we hurt did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy suspicion or bitterness Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? And we got this all down on paper and looked at it. So I'm writing all of this down. It's not staying in my head. If it's staying in my head, I'm in trouble because I have a thinking disease, remember? And then, in this way, we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? We asked God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. We, and this sentence was very important to me. We remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised and loathed. And trust me, I had swung from each end of that pendulum with this. And God, let me tell you, I tried. I really tried to rationalize my sane and sound idea for my future sex life, to have sex whenever I wanted with whoever I wanted and however I wanted. I tried. I really tried. And it just brought me to my my bottom. And I had to finally realize that I think God wants me to be in a committed, monogamous, long-term relationship. And today, I'll tell you, I've been with my partner for seven and a half years, and I have been faithful in this relationship. And I'm not proud to say that I've never been able to do that before. And it's because I take action today. And because for the most part, working these steps, that compulsion to like act out like that has been lifted. So now I'm at steps six and seven. I have these character defects and it's sort of, I mean, everybody's got their own laundry list, but mainly I have to remember that it's about selfishness and fear. Any character defect I choose to participate in I'm scared of something. I'm scared I'm going to lose something I think I need, or I'm scared I'm going to get something I don't want. It's all about fear. And in the sixth step, they ask us to become willing, you know, have God remove all these defects of character. And the thing is, is uh, sometimes I'm not willing, and I'll still use my character defect. But then finally, again, it brings me to my knees. And there's a seventh step prayer, my creator. I am now willing that you should have all of me. Good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. In that prayer is why I'm here. I used to go, oh, existential just thoughts. I'm like, oh, why am I here? What's my purpose? What am I supposed to do? I am supposed to be of use to God and my fellows. I am supposed to fit myself to be of maximum use to God and my fellows. Every day is a day when I must carry the vision of God's will into all of my activities. (coughs) So with the fourth and fifth step, I'm getting some of that garbage out. I'm getting the secrets out, some of the shame. And here's the deal. The fifth step, at least the way my sponsor taught me, was not just about going over the fourth step with the sponsor. It's about telling someone else your whole life story. Because we may not overcome the disease of alcoholism if we don't. And here's what I want to tell anybody in the room that has not done a fist step yet and are very, very scared to let go of some secrets, let go of the secrets. You may not recover from the disease of alcoholism. You certainly will not be happy, joy and free, joyous, and free because you're still carrying secrets. <coughs> and here's the other thing about that. There is nothing that you all have done that we haven't done. We've done it all. And if we haven't done it, we want to hear about it. Entertain us. (laughs) So now I come to the eighth and ninth step. Made a list of people I had harmed. Became willing to make amends to them all. And then made direct amends to them wherever possible. Except when to do so would injure them or others. And I found that a lot of those amends were around sex. And I just had to leave that alone. But I'll tell you about a couple of amends I made. And we have our list already. Or at least most of our list. Our resentment list. Because we had a part in that. But then there's also people, places, and things I had to add that I had harmed, around which I had no resentment whatsoever. I felt like I got away with something, <laughs> but it was a secret. It was a secret, and I couldn't hold my head high and walk down the street while I still had these amends to make. So my mother, my um, after I told my sponsor that you know I borrowed all this money from her, and I couldn't even guess how much I had borrowed. He goes, well, here's what you're going to do. You're going to write a card to her, a nice little card, once a month. And you're going to put a check in it. And since you don't know how much you owe, you're going to do that forever and ever. Amen? And you're going to call her and tell her why you're doing that. And I thought, this is so funny. I still have an alcoholic mind even today. But then when he told me that, he goes, I said, I thought, I think I have an out. Because I bet you if I call her and tell her that I'm going to pay her back, she'll go, oh, honey. You don't have to do that. But here was the miracle of the program. By this point in my recovery, I didn't care if she said that. I still wanted to do it because I wanted that freedom. So I called her up and I told her what I was doing and why. And she said it. Oh, honey, you don't have to do that. But if it'll keep you sober, I'll gladly take your checks. (laughs) I am not kidding. She wasn't trying to be funny. She was really so, and, you know, coming from a disease, uh, family of alcoholics, she was so happy that I was sober. You know, she's also sly, too. She wasn't going to turn down money. With the IRS, oh, my God. This actually, I started making amends to the IRS actually way before I got this sponsor because I had to. I couldn't warn them off anymore. And I remember the day I called them, I was, I mean, my stomach felt like glassy with fear. I felt like if someone poked me in the stomach, I would just burst apart into a million shards. I was so, I can't explain it any more than that the fear. It's so funny. Pauline talked about a fear this morning. I'm like, oh my God, that's my fear too. She talked about if she walked away, if you don't mind, if she walked away from an argument with her husband, the earth was going to open wide and swallow her whole. That was my fear. That was exactly my fear. And I don't care how irrational it sounds to say it, in the head, it feels real. But I knew to call someone in a program and then I finally called the IRS and we came up with a payment plan. And what they thought I could pay per month was a lot more than what I thought I could pay per month. <laughs> but that's the payment plan we came up with. And that was in 1998. And in 2011, I finally paid them off. Right? I have to say that because if anybody's in this situation, there is always experience, strength, and hope. And I really never thought. I just couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel with that for a long time. And here's what I'm going to tell you. There's some promises after the ninth step. It says before we are halfway through. And one of the promises is we will lose fear of people and of economic insecurity. I'm going to tell you, when I wrote that last check to the IRS, I did not lose my fear of economic insecurity. I lost it when I wrote the first check. And then the IRS would send me an envelope and I wouldn't put it in the drawer anymore. I didn't really particularly care to open it and look at it, but I didn't have to hide from it. I can look myself in the mirror and say, I will face fear today and I love myself, but it takes action to love myself and to face fear. It takes action. It's such a leap of faith. And then we come to 10, 11, and 12, and those are my... They call them the maintenance steps. I actually call them my spiritual growth steps. First of all, if I worked the first nine steps and I was struck perfect, I wouldn't need a tenth step. <laughs> but they, they recognize through their own experience that we're still human. We've done a lot of spiritual work and spiritual growth. But given any specific moment, I might fly off the handle. And I've got to make prompt amends. And then in the 11th step, in book, the book, they're really specific about, they say, uh, when we retire at night, we review our day, and they ask a bunch of questions. And, um, and then they say, w- w- and when we wake up in the morning, we review our day to come, and we ask that our thoughts be divorced of self-pity, selfishness, self-seeking motives. And, and, and those questions help me to work my 10th step, even though they're in the 11th step. And then I talked about this this morning at the speaker panel. I actually practice meditation. It's, it's based on centering prayer. And I, I sit silent for 20 minutes twice a day. And I remember when I first heard about this, I'm like, well, I'm busy. I can't do that. <laughs> but I do it now. And I don't know, again, God influenced me to do it. And so I sit 20 minutes and try to empty my mind. And I will tell you that that helps so much. For me to work, especially the third step, to let go. It's easy for me to detach. I don't know how that works. There's kind of a magic to it. And trust me, my mind is not empty for 20 minutes. But I do sit there and do it. And here's the way I think about it. God has been so good to me in my life today. How could I not give him 40 minutes of my day? You know, if I am to bring the vision of God's will into all of my activities on a daily basis... I've got to be connected with that God so I know what those visions are. And then the 12th step, we carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all of our affairs. And I've sponsored many men over there. Jim is my lowest maintenance sponsee ever, by the way. <laughs> he, he's already done the work, so we just kind of keep in touch, and then he's, a, he's a delight in my life. And I get to give him these coins with so many Roman numerals on them they can't even fit them on there. Um <laughs> And, and it's just such a delight. But here's the deal. My success, my measurement of success with doing the 12th step is not if my sponsors are staying sober. It's if I'm staying sober. That sounds kind of selfish, doesn't it? Because you know, this is a selfless program. I do a lot of things where I'd rather be sitting on the couch watching Stranger Things on Netflix. But when I get out of that, I get such a payback. that's spiritual in nature, not material. Except... In the wealth of great friends. Now, I want to talk to my, about my mother and my father really quickly, and then I'm going to wrap up because I, I really, especially from the Al Anon perspective, I, the program is all about mending relationships. And my mother is suffering from dementia, and she's still living at home independently, but she's just going through a heck of a couple of years where she's fallen victim to scams, and she hoarded her house, and so I had to step in and become power of attorney and hire a hoarding cleanup company and take take over her finances. This is a man whose financial life was a wreck. And now I'm helping her with her finances? How does that work? That old big book sponsor of mine would go, there's a chapter in the big book called How It Works. God love him. We're still great friends today too. And to that I would say, not that I would ever suggest that we change any of the words in the big book, but sometimes I wonder if that chapter should be called What to Do. Because it's very specific about what to do. But how it works, how I get from what I was to what I am today, it's amazing. And it's heartbreaking to see my mother's mental condition climb because she was a smart woman. But I'm able to be there. I'm able to be there. And I, I get a little worried in the future. Oh, God, what if I have to move home? Or she won't go to assisted living. And what's going to? Does she have enough money? And, but then I go, well, all I can do is just do what I do today. And God's in, God's in tomorrow. And I, I plan to be in tomorrow. And then there's my father. My mother never married. I did not meet my father until I was 34 years old. Thank God I was sober a <laughs> year. <laughs> We had a strained, cordial relationship for many years. Um, well, I don't have much time left, so I don't want to go into a lot of detail. But it was just a strained, cordial relationship. And yet I got to know him. And he was a very smart man as well, very well read, as my mother was. And I love to read. And he also, so I want to tell you, my mother's side of the family, they could barely run across the street to the Dairy Queen. And yet, I took up running. And I don't, nobody told me to do that. Well, I think someone, I saw someone run. I'm like, well, that looks like fun. So I started running. I actually ran the Chicago Marathon in 2001. I can't believe I did that still. And my hips today could never let me do it. I'll tell you a quick story about that. At the end, they had beer on tap. And here's these people who just ran 26.2 miles, polluting their bodies with beer. These alcoholics, oh my God, what are they thinking? They, they, oh, look, chocolate-covered peanuts. <laughs> <laughs> who was I judging? <laughs> so my dad was a marathon runner, and he did triathlons. He swam and biked and ran. By the time I met him, he was married to his second wife, Jane. She really does talk like that. She's from South Texas. She's his second wife, not the mother of his children. And uh, they really, as much as, as strange as our relationship probably was, they welcomed me with open arms. They really did. And one time when I was down in Texas, I actually had to courage to ask my dad, how do you feel about me? Well, Rick, my family calls me Rick. "Uh, I don't feel about you the way I feel about the children that I raised But anytime you're in Texas, I want you to come visit us. And anytime we're up in St. Louis, we want to come visit you. And it was like, ugh. But at the same time, he gave me such a gift of being very, very honest and not sparing my feelings. He didn't lie to me. How could he feel about me the way he felt about the children he raised? How could he? And then he started to decline physically. God, I'm either gonna get dementia on one side or Parkinson's disease on the other. And he became very like physically incapacitated by Parkinson's and that was such a shame because he was so physical. And I went down to visit him in January. I'm leaving a lot of details out and that's all right, but I went down to visit him in January. And when I went down on the plane, thanks to this program, I had the thought, I am going to go down there and be of use to them. I know Jan was about pulling her hair out. They had in-home help by this time, but it was rough on her. It was really rough on her. So I said, I'm going to go down, and I'm going to use my wit and my charm and whatever I can to cheer them up as much as I can. And I rented a car from Houston, went down to Lake Jackson, and knocked on the door, and Jan opened the door, gave me a big old hug. And then I walked into the living room, and it was really, really hard to see my dad. In that much of a decline, he was sitting in a chair or laying in a chair that lifts him up because he couldn't get up on his own. And I just said, and I never did call him dad. I called him by his first name, Gardner. I said, hey, Gardner, don't get up. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, well, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> and we went on to have a great trip. Just a great trip. And a lot of his kids came around. Like, I have three half-siblings, which is just bizarre for me to imagine because I'm such an only child, Jennifer Greer and Gardner Jr. I guess I shouldn't be saying her names like Kathy was saying, but oh well, there it is. <laughs> um, and they accepted me with open arms. We had a great time. And the last night I was there, I was getting ready to leave to go back to the hotel, and then I was flying out early the next morning. And I was saying my goodbyes, and Gardner goes, Rick, I have regrets. And I did not realize Kathy talked about this during the speaker panel. She, she does this thing called wait. Why am I talking? W-A-I-T. And so I didn't know it, but I was intuitively using wait because I wasn't going to say anything. Well, then jam, God lover she pops up and goes, what about Gardner? <laughs> because she's trying to poke him into what he wants to say. I regret not being there for you when you grew up. Man, I don't know what. I don't know what happened to make me say this. But I said, Gardner, that's all right. We're good. My mother raised me well. And I am so happy that I've had a chance to know you as well now. I mean, how lucky am I? So I know you feel, you know, regretful, but I want you to know that we're good. And uh, I made plans, that was in January, I made plans to go back in May to visit again. And in April, he passed away. (laughs) So it's kind of like Kathy's story last night. I'm so glad that those were the last words I got to say to him. And I could not have done it if I were still drinking. I could not have done it if I weren't drinking but not working this program. God has been so good to me. You know, throughout it all. You know, it says, you know, we will meet some of you as we trudge the road of happy destiny. And a lot of people misquote that and say the road to happy destiny. It's not to anywhere. It's of. It's right now. It's right this moment. No matter what is going on. No matter what is worrying me. No matter what I think is going to happen. This is happy destiny right now. And for me to be happy, joyous, and free with this happy destiny, I've got to be as present as I can. Now, I'm going to close with a reading from the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, what did I do with that? Maybe I'm not. There it is. You know, I used to think I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be famous. I wanted to have a lot of money. And then I'll be happy. And this reading, I love this reading. Wonderful is the feeling that we do not have to be specially distinguished among our fellows in order to be useful and profoundly happy. Not many of us can be leaders of prominence, nor do we wish to be. Service gladly rendered. Obligations squarely met. Troubles w- I'm like Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, I brought in an outside issue. Let me start that sentence (laughs) again. Service gladly rendered, obligations squarely met, troubles well accepted or solved with God's help, the knowledge that at home or in the world outside we are partners in a common effort, the well-understood fact that in God's sight all human beings are important, the proof that love freely given surely brings a full return, the certainty that we are no longer isolated and alone in self-constructed prisons, the surety that we need no longer be square pegs in round holes but can fit and belong in God's scheme of things. These are the permanent and legitimate satisfactions of right living for which no amount of pomp and circumstance, no heap of material possessions could possibly be substitutes. True ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is a deep desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. Thank you for letting me share.